0: As disciples of Jesus Christ, it's critical that we know what we've been sent out into the world to do. We haven't received grace simply to keep it to ourselves, but to extend this grace to others. In this message from Matthew 9, verse 35 through chapter 10, verse 4, David Platt urges us to consider the mission Christ has given us, a mission that leads us to look to the needs of others and to proclaim Christ's love to them. Though this mission isn't always easy, we go in the authority of the King. This is the Radical with David Platt podcast. Here is David with a message titled, The Disciple's Mission.
1: If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. I couldn't decide between two texts to preach on this morning, and so we're going to hit both of them. But Don't get scared. We're not going to be in Galatians 1 for very long. We're just going to look at that and let that vault us into Matthew chapter 9, but I want us to start in Galatians chapter 1. Over the last two weeks, we have seen the truth of what it means to be in Christ, in Christ to be in us. I pray that God, by His grace, would enable us to experience the reality of those two glorious truths, what it means to be in Christ, and Christ to be in us. The question I want to ask this morning, though, is why? Why has God put Christ in you? Why has God put Christ in us? And what you see there in your notes is the circles that we started looking at last week. And you see in the middle is a picture of Christ in you and how Christ infiltrates everything about who we are. He affects our mind and our emotions and our body and our will and our relationships. Over the next five weeks, we're going to unpack those five circles. How does Christ affect the way we think and affect the way we feel, affect the way we act, our body and our will, and affect our relationships. But what I want us to do this morning is look at that outer circle, the picture of mission. And I want us to ask the question, why does Christ affect our mind and our emotions and our body and our will and our relationships? And He does it for a reason, because He wants to use all of you. All of who you are, your mind, your emotions, your body, your will, your relationships, your friendships, your marriages, your parenting. He wants to use every facet of you to display His glory to all the world. He has a purpose for being in you. I want you to see that unfold in Galatians chapter 1. Two simple verses that are so key for understanding our Christianity We're going to come in on a part of the conversation where Paul is describing how he came to faith in Christ. And listen to what he says in verse 15. It says, When God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased, listen to this, God was pleased to reveal his son in me. So Christ in me. So that, here's the purpose clause so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Did you catch that? Paul said, God in his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me, to put Christ in me for a purpose so that I would proclaim him to the nations. The very purpose. Why, Paul? Why has, Paul saved, why has God saved you? Why has God brought you into Christ? And Paul says, he's done it so that I can proclaim Christ and show Christ and declare Christ to the world around me. This is the reason for why Christ is in us. He's in us for a purpose, in us for a mission. In your notes, you've got there, and this is kind of the theme that's going to drive our study in the text this morning. Christ is in you for them. Christ is in you for them, for their sake, and them referring to those who do not know Christ, the nations, the people in your sphere of influence on a daily basis, and the people in the Middle East, and everywhere in between. Christ is in you for them. And with that picture, I want us to go back to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9. And I want us to look at an amazing passage of Scripture. It is a heart-rendering passage of Scripture that gives us a glimpse into Jesus' heart that is life-transforming. And as you're turning there, Matthew chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 35. I want you to know the context, because the context here is so important. Matthew chapter 3, Jesus says, baptized. Matthew chapter 4, he is tempted. In Matthew chapter 5, he basically, end of chapter 4 and chapter 5, he begins his ministry. And his ministry revolves around teaching and preaching and healing people. That's what verse 35 actually tells us. He went throughout all these places preaching and teaching and healing people, every disease. That's what we've seen up until this point in Matthew. Matthew chapter 5 through 7, he's teaching the Sermon on the Mount Then in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, you see Him preaching the good news and healing people, just kind of back and forth. And this is a transition point in the entire book of Matthew because it's at this point that we basically get a summary of what Jesus has been doing. And then in chapter 10, what Jesus does is He sends out His disciples. And you know what He sends out His disciples to do? He sends them out to do the exact same things He had been doing. He says, you go out and you teach and you preach and you heal. And what we see here in this transition point in the book of Matthew is an astonishing parallel between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is teaching and preaching and healing. And then he sends out his disciples and they teach and preach and heal. And the picture is Jesus is doing all of his work through them. And He's enabling them to do all of these things, to teach and to preach and to heal. It's a picture of the fact that Christ came to enable us, His people, those who followed after Him, to do what He did. This is why He needed to go to heaven, send His Spirit to live in us, for Christ to be in us so that we would do exactly what He did. And so when we read this text, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 and following, I want you to realize that the picture we're going to see here of Christ is the same Christ who dwells inside of you this morning. If you have trusted in Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, this is the Christ whose heart is in you. So keep that in mind and listen to what it says. Verse 35, Jesus went through He called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed Him. This is an amazing text of Scripture that gives us a glimpse into the heart of Christ for people who did not know the Father. The same heart of Christ that He has put in each and every one of us. So when Christ is in us, how does that affect the way we view the world around us? Number one, when Christ is in you, your life is now consumed by the love of Christ for them your life is now consumed by the love of Christ for people who do not know the father it's as if the Holy Spirit is opening up the heart of Christ just to give us a picture here And it says when he saw the crowds he had compassion on them this is such a rich word what's really interesting about this word is that throughout the New Testament it's used nine different times But what's interesting is every single time it's used, it's used to talk about the compassion of Christ. It's never used, not once. It's not used to describe the compassion of anybody else but Christ. So this word is unique to Christ in the New Testament. It's a compassion that He has, and there's a picture here for us that the compassion of Christ is not something that naturally, comes naturally to any one of us. This is not something we automatically have. The compassion of Christ is something that He puts in us, that flows from us, that only can come from Him as the source. And so I want you to see how His compassion plays out. How does His compassion affect us? How does it consume us? Well, first of all, in Christ, we see the size of the multitudes. We see the size of the multitudes. When He saw the what? When He saw the crowds. When he saw the masses of people, it was in one city last week where the city is comprised of different hills, and there is one that is higher, basically a mountain in the middle, and you can stand at the top of that mountain, and you can look, and in a circle, you can literally see the whole city here in this country in the Middle East, and you can see houses. And houses and houses all across these hilltops. You can literally see the 1.2 million people in this city. And to realize as you look out over that city that 80 to 90% of them have never once personally heard that Jesus died on a cross for their sins. It was one of the most, if not the most, vast pictures of spiritual darkness that I have ever seen. The only thing I can compare it to is some cities in India where there are just millions and millions of people. But the difference was in those cities that I was in, in India, we could share the gospel. In this particular city, as soon as we share the gospel with one person who is a Muslim, we would be arrested and deported from the country. And so to see the vast, spiritual darkness, and to know that it's illegal to take the gospel to them, and to know that they join a host of over a billion other people, a billion other people in the world who don't personally have a time when they have heard the gospel. God, help us to see the size of the multitudes. Four times the population of the United States of America has never once had someone share the gospel with them. God help us to see their size. Hudson Taylor, missionary from England to China said this, how Can all the Christians in England sit still with folded arms while these multitudes are perishing, perishing for lack of knowledge, for lack of that knowledge which England possesses so richly? God, help us to see their size, to see the masses who haven't even heard His name. When He saw the crowds, we see in Christ, we see the size of the multitudes in Christ. We feel the suffering of the multitudes. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And the picture here is is rich. Why did he have compassion? Because they were harassed and helpless. And it literally says he was moved with compassion. This is more than just an intellectual or a mental compassion, knowing something was wrong. It's an emotional, literally a physical feeling of compassion. It's the same thing we see in John chapter 11 when Lazarus had died and he comes and he sees Mary and Martha weeping. And it says he was deeply moved in spirit. He was troubled and he began to weep with them. It's the same picture we see in Luke chapter 19 when Jesus comes to the top of a mountain and sees over the whole city of Jerusalem for the last time before he goes in and is crucified. And it says he saw the city. And Luke 19.41 says he wept. Why did he weep? Why was he so moved? Because they were harassed and helpless. Now those are two rich words. I'm guessing amidst the different translations that are across this room, we've got almost different translations for those two words in every single different translation that's represented in this room. NIV says harassed and helpless. The New American Standard says distressed and downcast. King James says fainted and scattered abroad. One says mangled and thrown to the ground, distracted and dejected, bewildered and miserable. Basically, this word harassed literally means to be distressed or troubled, literally to be torn apart. And the picture of helpless is literally to be thrown down and to be utterly weak without anything. That's how Jesus perceived the crowds. Now, this is so huge. This is so huge to see Jesus' response to the suffering of the crowds when he saw the crowds because he knew. He knew that all of these people had sin in their lives, sin that separated them from the Father. But I want you to see his reaction. His reaction is not just indignation toward their sin his reaction is compassion for their suffering that's there as a result of their sin and this is big this is really big let me ask you a question when you think of people in the Middle East what images come to your mind I'm guessing we're immediately seeing images from CNN and Fox News And we think of terrorists, and we think of evil, bad people, those who live in constant conflict, who make trouble, people to be avoided. And if this is the reaction we have to what we see in the Middle East, then we have missed the whole point of Christ in us. Because when he saw the crowds, he did not see them with indignation because of their sin. He saw them with compassion because of their suffering. See, the people of the Middle East, millions of them, wonderful people, precious people, created in the image of God. And yes, they have sin, but so do you. And he's created them for his glory. And he's fashioned them with his own hands. And he cares deeply for them. And he feels their suffering. Yes, we were five minutes away from this car bomb in East Beirut. But this is what they live in in Beirut. Day after day, moment by moment. They never know. preached about an hour or two after that bombing in a church to these people who some of them had been 100 or 200 yards away from the bombing. And they know when they get up in the morning and they go throughout their city during the day. They know that they could be in the wrong place at the wrong time that particular day. They never know when it's going to happen. They said, this is what we live in. God, help us to feel suffering. And not just to see sin. God, help us to see, not like CNN see sees, but see like Christ sees. Help us not to feel what Fox News feels. Help us to feel what Christ feels. A church moved with compassion deeply for the suffering of people in the world. They're harassed and helpless, he said. Sheep without a shepherd. In Christ we see their size, we feel their suffering, and in Christ we realize the separation of the multitudes. They're described as sheep without a shepherd. Sheep wandering around with no one to lead them, no shepherd to lead them. One of the most poignant things, one person told us in the middle of one particular country, she said, these people that you see, they have not rejected Christ. They have never even met Him. Sheep without a shepherd. And it's at this point that Jesus transitions into a picture of the harvest. The harvest is plentiful. And what I'd never seen in Matthew 9 that God opened my eyes to as I was studying this text was the picture of the harvest that's used here in Matthew 9 that's also used all across Scripture. And you look all across Scripture, and we don't have time this morning to go to some of these texts. I wish we did, but Isaiah, you might write these down. Isaiah chapter 17, verse 10 and 11 talks about the harvest as a time when God will bring His judgment upon sin. Joel chapter 3, verse 11 through 14, talks about the same exact thing. When the harvest comes, this will be the time when God judges sin. It's not a good picture in Isaiah or Joel. You turn over to Matthew chapter 13, verse 30, and then at the end of that chapter, verse 40 through 42, what you'll see is Jesus talk about the harvest and the time when the wheat will be separated from the tares. This is the time when it will be shown all of those who are headed for eternal destruction. Then you go to Revelation chapter 14, verse 14 through 20, and you see the picture there, and the harvest is the imagery that's used to describe when God will carry out everlasting judgment, eternal judgment on people who are apart from Christ because of their sin. That's the picture we've got in the Bible of the harvest. And so when Jesus uses this imagery for these Jewish Christians who are reading this, to know, this is a picture. Why did Jesus have such compassion for those who are lost? Why was He urging them to get into the harvest field? He's urging them because God's judgment is sure. God's judgment on sin is eternal. His judgment on sin is eternal. It's everlasting. And if you don't get to the harvest now, then you will lose the harvest forever. If you don't take the gospel to these people today, then many of them will experience God's judgment forever. That's why, that's why he had compassion. He saw their size. And he felt their suffering and he realized their separation. God, help us to see the size of the multitudes. Help us to feel the suffering of the multitudes. Help us to realize their separation. And as a result, we must realize we can no longer live for ourselves. We can no longer live for ourselves. Not with that picture of need and the heart of Christ in us. There is no way to live Christianity for self-consumption anymore. It is Christianity for them, Christ in you for them. We are consumed by the love of Christ for them. Three nights in a row we had an opportunity to sit down with three different groups of Muslims, two families, and then one group of guys. We were there during Ramadan. It's Ramadan right now, which is the Muslim holy month, where they fast all day from food or water. In one particular country, you, you take a drink during the day and you can get arrested. So, you just keep your water bottle in your bag the whole time. And so, we went three nights in a row to the meal. It's called the Iftar. It literally means breakfast, but it's break the fast. It's the meal they break the fast for after sun goes down and they finish their final call to prayer. And we had the opportunity to be in a couple of different homes in one other place with these guys. And they had told us, just 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 get to know their culture, learn from them. they will not ask you what you think or what you believe, so don't volunteer that and so that first night, we sat there and, and listened, and this family welcomed us into their home, so hospitable, more hospitable than than any picture I've ever seen in the United States just warmly welcoming us in, and we sat around on the floor, literally reclining at the table and eating and learning, and they were sharing about their culture and their religion and all of these different things. We sat there for hours just learning and listening and having an incredible time with them. The next night, though, we expected the same, and we were sitting around, and it was kind of going the same. These guys were sharing with us different things they believed, but then one of them said, well, what do you guys believe? Now, keep in mind, this is a country where you're not allowed to share the gospel. And so, you've got a quandary there. Okay, how much do I want to share? And we decided, well, why not? So, so, we start to share. And, and it was so interesting, the dialogue with Islam, the, the divinity of Christ is, is a huge issue. They do not believe Jesus is God. Jesus is a prophet, but God would not become a man. He would not debase himself to do that. And it would be fruitless to debate the divinity of Christ there at that table. And so, began to describe how when I met Heather, I began to pursue her with my love. They were kind of listening like, this is your religion, but just follow me. (laughs) I began to pursue her with my love, and, and I pursued her, and I pursued her with my love, but I couldn't send somebody else to tell her that I loved her. I didn't want to send my friends to tell her. I didn't want to send her friends to tell her. Even the most important person in the world, I couldn't send them to tell her because in matters of love, one must go himself. I said, God is infinite love. And in matters of how he shows us love, he does not send someone else. Instead, he comes himself. They start to listen really? That's interesting. And then they began to talk about how they don't know for sure if they will spend eternity in heaven with God. I said, well, let me, let me take you back to my pursuit of love with my wife. I said, what if I, let me give you two scenarios. What if I told my wife that I loved her as long as she cooked good food and made good meals and did things just like I wanted to, and as long as she did those things, then I would love her. But if she did not do those things, then I would not love her and she could no longer be with me. Or on the other hand, what if I told my wife that I loved her and no matter what happened, no matter what she did, I would always love her. She could always be with me. I said, which one would be the greater display of love? And I said, well, of course, the second one, unconditional love. I said, exactly. A father who says, I love you, regardless of what you do, I pour out my love on you. And this guy is sitting across the table. He's soaking it in it. He looks back and he says, so we love God because he loves us? I mean the guy was quoting first John four nineteen. <laughs> it's beautiful. The next night we were with another family and we had not gotten into some of the specifics, like specifically talking about how Christ is God. It gave him that word picture. We not talked about how Christ had died on the cross, and this next night it was our last night in this particular country. And They started asking us again what we believed, and so it was all out this time. We just began to share about how God showed His love most clearly by giving His life for us, and the response was continually, it was, God would not debase Himself like that. God is too great for that. I looked at them and I said, there's a quote I like. It says, greater love has no one than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends. Isn't that great love? He said, yes, that is great love. This is God's great love. And it was interesting in all those three conversations, listening and talking, to see them and to see the darkness just visibly in front of you. And then to hear one of them, listen to what he said. One of them said, If we could hear the voices of those who are in hell crying out, he said, this is a Muslim man, he said, we would not be able to stand it. The irony of that statement was thick. And I prayed right there, God, I pray that the church of Brook Hills would hear the cries. And I pray that we won't be able to stand it. That we will see the size of the multitudes and feel their suffering, realize their separation, and decide we will no longer live for ourselves. We will be consumed by the love of Christ in us for them. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. In Christ, your life is now consumed by the love of Christ for them. But second, your life is now committed to the body of Christ for them, to the body of Christ for the sake of those who are not in Christ. I want you to see what happens. This is so interesting. Jesus has obviously, the passage is focused on his love for those who are lost, those who are apart from Christ. Christ. But then, when he begins to talk to his disciples, he doesn't talk about those who don't know Christ. He talks about the church. He said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Isn't that interesting? You'd expect him at this point to say, They are harassed and helpless. They are without the Father. And so pray for them. Pray that they would come to know the Father. Pray for them. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus does not say to pray for the lost. I'm not saying it's bad to pray for those who don't know Christ. I think there's other parts of the New Testament that do give us that picture, but not here. Jesus is not saying to pray for those who don't know Christ. He's not saying to pray for the lost. He's saying to pray for the church. Isn't that interesting? Apparently, Jesus' concern is not that the lost will not come to the Father. Jesus' concern is that the church will not go to the lost. Did you catch that? Jesus is not concerned. The lost will not come to the Father. His concern is the church will not go to the lost. Wow, what a picture. And to be completely honest, this is, probably the most disheartening part of the last two weeks for me. Even more disheartening than the vast spiritual lostness was the picture we saw of the church in the Middle East. Precious brothers and sisters, but such a disheartening picture. Here's the deal. Basically, in the Middle East, to be a Christian, quote-unquote a Christian, really has much more to do with your political or cultural status than it does your religious status. Just because you're a Christian certainly does not mean you're a follower of Christ. It means you're not a Muslim or it means that you vote a certain way. It means you may go or attend, go to or attend church, and that church may or may not believe the gospel. We talked with some pastors who, uh, one pastor who, had been a part of a church and he said, I figured out that my pastor was not born again and so I started another church. So that's kind of the picture that is there. Christian really is more political and cultural. But we did have the opportunity to spend some time with some church leaders in a couple of different countries and to get a picture of the state of the church. And and there's not a lot of evangelical churches, churches that that believe the gospel. There's not a lot. But of those that are, are there, many of them, what we became aware of is that many of them are embroiled in in struggles, and a lot of those struggles deal with two things, money and power. The picture is the majority of the churches over there have either been started by or are currently supported by churches in the West, i.e. here or other places, Western culture, in one particular country, all of the churches, there's not one church that was started by a national, it's all started by Westerners, supported by Westerners. And so what you've got is the church leaders who are there spend much of their time raising resources from the West to build buildings and to create programs in the church, and they compete with each other for resources from the West to build buildings and to create programs. And that one particular country where there's not one church that has not been started by has has been started by a national one of those churches that was started by a Westerner now is preparing. They want to be a mega church in this country. Use the term. They want to build a big building. And mega churches. A couple of hundred members there. They want to build a a big building. They have a plan for a big building, and they're going to get funds to build the building. The only problem is that for a Muslim to come into that church building in that culture could very well cost that Muslim his or her life. Because just as Christian is more of a cultural political, Muslim many times is the same way too. And so if you start going to a church even once, then you've dishonored your culture and your heritage, and you can lose your life for for that legally. For for a Muslim to get involved in one Christian program or to go to one church building could cost them their lives. And so obviously that's not going to be the most effective way to reach Muslims with the gospel. Is it? I mean, that's an easy one. That's a no-brainer. And so it all begs the question, where did those church leaders get the idea that building buildings and having nice programs is the best way to spread the gospel? They've seen a model of ministry. We were in a few different churches in there all reflected a strong Western model of ministry. They've seen a model of ministry that says, spend your resources on nice buildings and great programs, and you will have a successful church. That's what they've seen in us. That's what they're doing. And meanwhile, a Muslim world in the Middle East still sits by waiting to hear the gospel. Ladies and gentlemen, by the way we are doing church here, we are slowing down church there. We had one person literally tell us that, having a conversation. We said, what can we do to help the church here? His response immediately, he said, you're slowing us down by what you are doing and by what you're failing to do. Those were his words, thought about titling the message today, you're slowing us down. You don't want to hear that on the field, in the middle of vast spiritual lostness. And it's not other churches. We spend 80% of our budget on a building and paid personnel. And together with other churches throughout the southeastern United States, across the country, but they're everywhere here, together, We have shown to our brothers and sisters around the world that this is the wisest use of resources for the glory of God's kingdom, and we need to repent. Because we know, we know that all of our buildings and our paid personnel have have fostered This come-and-see spectator mentality that is so prevalent across the church, and it's becoming prevalent there, and all of our nice, fancy programs, let's be honest, and this is humbling, all of this, very humbling for a pastor to say. Don't say them lightly, but all of our fancy programs, if we're really honest, we have to, as Christians, fight through the programs of the church to actually interact with lost people in our communities. And this has got to change. For the sake of his glory in Birmingham and for the sake of his glory in Beirut, this has got to change. How? Can we best penetrate the world with the gospel? It's through the church being the church, personally making disciples, giving our lives for the sake of others, spreading and multiplying the gospel. That's what we must give ourselves to. It is high time for the church to rise up and do what the church was created to do for the sake of brothers and sisters here and on the other side of the world. We must be committed to the body of Christ for their sake for them. Jesus knew that the temptation would be there in His church to do everything except for the one thing He told them to do. And that's where we are. He was concerned the church would not go to the lost. And so let's start spending our time and our resources and everything we have on giving our lives to this mission and let's repent of the comfortable, comfortable, extremely comfortable, yet radically unbiblical model of ministry that we have adopted and exported around the world. Your life is committed to the body of Christ for them. So what do we do? What do we do? Jesus says, pray, pray. We must pray for laborers. Pray for harvesters to go. Pray for laborers. Ask the Lord of the harvest. Again, he's not saying pray for the lost. He's saying pray for the church. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would wake up the harvesters in church buildings across this land. Pray that God would wake up harvesters to see that their." There are things in the world that are infinitely more important than 401Ks and football, God help us. We are so blinded to the true battle in the world by the artificial battles that surround us in our culture. And we have the gall to talk about how someone can be a coach and a savior in Alabama when we fill our conversations even on Sunday morning with that. Let's start talking about how the savior of the world is penetrating the nations with his greatness. Let's let that consume our conversations. Let's let that drive our days and nights. Let's spend hours on the internet finding out how we can pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. Let's do that. And I'm convinced when we pray like this, church at Brook Hills, when we pray like this, then we will see a great harvest in Birmingham and in the Middle East. If we pray like this, pray for laborers. We must pray for laborers and we must lead by example. We must lead by example. God has given us so much. He's given us so many resources, so much opportunity, so much influence. And we will be held accountable before the God of the universe for how we use those resources to expand His kingdom around the world. We need to lead by example. That leads us to this last picture. Your life is consumed by the love of Christ and committed to the body of Christ for them. Your life is now commissioned in the work of Christ for them. I love this. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers. That, that phrase, send out, it's the same phrase that's used when Jesus casts out demons in other parts of the New Testament. Cast out literally means to fling out. I love that. Ask God to start flinging His church all over the world. Just fling the church. We are church-flung. I don't know if that's a word, but that's what we're praying God would do. Fling the church out. And that's what he does in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. We read it. He called his 12 disciples to him. That's another great word. It really doesn't get the meaning there with just this word called. It literally means he summoned them as to call them to a face-to-face encounter. I love it. Jesus brings his disciples face-to-face, kind of gets in their face, and he says, all right, guys, it's time for you to go. It's time for you to go. I'm going to cast you out. It's time for you to to be flung. You're going to go out. You're gonna do this, commissioned for the work of Christ. And then you notice the change? Verse 1, it says he called his twelve what to him? Disciples to him. Verse 2, these are the names of the 12, names of the 12 what? Apostles. Oh, that's great. Disciple literally means a learner, following a teacher. Apostle means someone who is sent out by the teacher. This is a picture. Jesus calls disciples to send them out. And yes, there's something special all across the New Testament about, them, about these guys. They're, them as apostles, and Paul was an apostle. But the picture we also get in the rest of the New Testament is that we are all sent out. And the picture is here. Oh, it's a great word picture. It's literally being sent out basically as an agent or an emissary of someone else. Kings would send out agents or ambassadors that would literally represent them And if somebody went as an agent or an ambassador of the king, it was like the king going himself. The king literally went through him. And so when this agent or ambassador comes, it's like the king has come to you. The king has a message for you. Isn't that a great picture? What Jesus does, he calls us to himself and he sends us out. And everywhere we go, we are agents, ambassadors of the king. And he gives them authority. He doesn't send them out alone. Authority to drive out spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. He gives them that authority. And the good thing is, it's not just for them. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, right before the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go and make disciples. Same picture that's there. Ladies and gentlemen, we have the authority of the king. We go as agents of the king, as ambassadors of the king, and his authority to drive out evil spirits, to drive out darkness. That was one of my favorite parts, sitting in there in those rooms, sharing about Christ, and to know the truth of Christ has power to cause all that darkness to flee. All of it. And there were kids sitting around in the room, listening, and look at their faces, and to know that this was the first time that each of them was hearing the gospel, and to, to pray for them, and to know that this is the first time their face has ever been lifted up to the throne. And to know that the words the gospel, if I was true to that coming out of my mouth, that those words had power to penetrate hearts, change them, we have the authority of the king. And we live and we die to multiply the kingdom. This is the great picture in verse two. It gives us the list of these guys. It tells them they were sent out in groups. We see a picture of two by two in the Gospels. And we, we've talked about this. We saw this a few weeks ago that uh, these guys are grouped even into smaller groups out of these 12. And, and they knew that if they were going to expand this message of the kingdom, they couldn't all stay together in one group. They had to multiply. And so they multiplied through, through small groups. That's what They did. Because they knew the masses needed to know and they didn't want to consolidate everything together. They wanted to spread it out, scatter it out. Do you realize, do you realize what day and age God has put us in in the history of the world? There are more people on earth today than there have ever been in the history of the world. Why did God not save Paul for 2007? Because he put you in 2007 and me in 2007. In Christ's day, They estimate, statisticians estimate about 250 million people, 250 million, slightly less than the United States. It took 1,800 years, so about 1,850, for there to be 1 billion people. And then things just started to grow. Within 80 years, there were 2 billion, 30 years, 3 billion, 15 years, 4 billion, 10 years, 5 billion, to today where there's close to 7 billion people, 6.5 to 7 billion people. If that's the case, then we have to consider any strategy in the church that is incremental. We have to consider that kind of strategy insufficient. No matter how great the program is, if it's incremental, then it will never keep up with the exploding population of the world. We must give ourselves to that which is reproducible across cultures around the world, multiplying the gospel. That's why we're giving ourselves to disciple-making. We live and die to multiply the kingdom. And I, I I did in these notes, I just had, we live to multiply the kingdom, and I thought that sounded a little better. But when you read down through the rest of the chapter, you have to add those two words, and die, because verse 21 through 28, Jesus talks to them about how all men will hate them because of him. And he says, don't fear the one who can kill the body. You will be persecuted, he says. Just as I have been, you will be. The picture is, is heavy. And, and that our brothers and sisters do know in the Middle East, sitting in a home with a pastor who last year had his home bombed in the Lebanon-Israeli conflict to talk with these men and women who live in that picture in Beirut day in and day out. To talk with one person who had come from Islam to faith in Christ, to know that if certain people found out, she would immediately be killed, legally be killed. And to begin to think I pray, pray that God will never let us, as a church, be dissuaded from this mission by the risk it may bring. Because if we are dissuaded by the risk it may bring, then we have to ask ourselves the question, what kind of Christ are we really following? give everything to multiply the kingdom. There's a book called The Purpose Driven Church by Rick Warren, the pastor at Saddleback. And I want to use this as an illustration. I want to just give this caveat from the very beginning. This is not in any way a criticism of him or that church. I've been out to that church. They're doing incredible things to lead people to Christ. And they're doing even more around the world. It's it's great. So this is just by way of comparison. So just just keep that in mind. But this this was a big church growth book. And in it, it talked about Saddleback Sam. And what it is, is they identified the profile of the people who lived in their community. And they said, we're going to, we're going to, do what we do, do church for the sake of this young urban professional with this kind of family and this kind of beliefs and this kind of, we're going to gear things around this person. So this was kind of the profile, Saddleback Sam, and they encourage churches, if you, if you want to grow and reach people who don't know Christ, then get a profile of the people in your community and go after them. And so I want us to do that. We're going to do it a little different. We're not going to live for Brook Hill's Bob. or Brook Hills Betty, okay, that's not, that's not our profile. We're not going to work for Saddleback Sam or Brook Hills Bob. We're going to work for, here's who we're working for, we're going to work for the Brook Hills Bedouin. The Brook Hills Bedouin. Let me give you the profile. profile is five million Bedouin people scattered throughout countries in the Middle East who live in relatively harsh conditions, tents made of goat hair in the middle of desert regions, have little food, and oftentimes live in poor health conditions, men, women, children, five million of them. And among the Bedouin people, there are 40 believers. 40 people who know Christ out of 5 million that's 0. 0.008%. And for a Bedouin to come to faith in Christ they can legally lose their lives. That's the profile we're going to live for, and we're going to do everything we do as a church here for their sake over there. And What that means is we won't do a lot of things that, that people might expect us to do, and we might expect us to do as a church. This is what a church does. What, growing up in church, church does this, and this, and this, and this, and this. And this. And a lot of those things are effective if our audience is the 10-mile radius around this location. But our audience is no longer this 10-mile radius. Our audience is people who live 10,000 miles away from here and have never heard the name of Jesus. And so we're going to give ourselves to small groups that are making disciples of all nations because if we're doing that, we're giving ourselves to that, we will impact the Bedouin people with the gospel. We will take the gospel to them. So we... We're going to go on a journey as a church to begin to uncover what it's like to do church for the sake of people who have never heard the name of Jesus on the other side of the world. And I'm trusting that in the process, we're going to begin to realize the heart of Christ. And we're going to begin to be consumed by his love for them and committed to his body for them and commissioned in His work for their sake. What I want us to do in response to this word is exactly what Jesus told us to do. I'm going to ask these guys to come up and to play in the background, and I want us to pray. I'm going to come down here to the front and kneel, and I want to invite others to join me. I want to invite people to... Join across the room, whether you want to sit or stand, or there's places to kneel on the sides of the room. But I want us to pray. And unusually, I don't want us to pray for the better one or those who don't know Christ. I want us to do what Jesus said, and I want us to pray for the church. I want us to spend time out of this word praying for each other, that God would help us all, including myself, Help us all to put on the altar all of our agendas and all the things that we expect when we think of church, to put it all on the altar and come back to the Bible and say, how can we do ministry biblically for their sake? I want us to pray for each other. I want us to pray for this church. And I want us to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world whom we have affected. I want us to pray that God would give us great partnership with them in the gospel to make disciples together. I want to invite you to pray for brothers and sisters in Lebanon, in Syria, in Jordan, in Saudi Arabia, in Egypt, in Algeria, in Iraq, and Iran, in Pakistan. I want to invite you to pray for brothers and sisters all across the world. And know that we have the opportunity right now to be a part of affecting the harvest through our prayers. And so as these guys start to pray behind me, I'm just going to invite you, whether you'd like to just sit and pray, whether you'd like to come to the front and spend time in prayer, I'd like for us just to be a people who fall before God during the next few moments and say, we want you to wake up your church here and around the world so that we impact this harvest with the gospel.
0: Gender, sexuality, artificial intelligence, race, justice, genomics the metaverse life seems so very complicated these days fragmented even and everyone has an opinion about everything but what does the bible say about all of these issues about you about me about the 7 billion people that fill every street town campus village apartment and neighborhood on earth join us for secret church a unique one-night event streamed online to more than 50,000 participants around the world Encouraged by our persecuted brothers and sisters' example, we meet for close to six hours for intense study of God's Word and passionate prayer for the persecuted. Taught and led by David Platt. Join us Friday, April 29, 2022, at 7 p.m. Eastern. Participating in the Secret Church live stream is easy. You can stream from your church, home, office, or anywhere you have an internet connection. You are not going to want to miss this. That's it for today's episode. I'm your host, Stacey Martin. For additional articles, podcasts, events, and more, visit Radical.net or follow us on Facebook and Instagram.